I'm Dermot Hussey. Welcome to Riffin Radio, the podcast. It's a collection of interviews with artists from various genres, spanning three decades and giving more context to the music we love. Ernie Wranglin, Jamaica's brilliant guitarist, who has been awarded the National Honor of Order of Jamaica, has played a key role in every period of Jamaica's popular music. I spoke to him about that history. Ernie, what I'd really like to find out is where did this all go back to? Where how did it all start when you, you know, developed the skill for the guitar, you know, you got your first instrument, the beginning. Where did it all start? Well, uh, the first place where it started, um, I would say that I started with like sardine tins and things like that, you know, because I couldn't afford to buy. Well, this is what at the age of about three, around four, you know. So I would make little things from sardine tins and, and um, little would call it little cards we call it twine i don't know what you know little cards like those and wax it you know and try to tune it but then eventually i i, I used to play i got a ukulele at the age of about uh, i would say around eight and then um i played by year until i was around 14 so I didn't know exactly what I was doing, but I had a good ear, you know, so I could try and catch tunes and keep playing. But at the age of 14, I decided that I would really study this thing properly. So I started to play the guitar from there on. I mean, to study the guitar from there on. How, how did you get your first instrument and all that? Who was responsible for letting you have that? Well, um, after playing on these little sardines thing, um, my uncles, you know, they used to come in and in the evening times and they play, you know, but they wouldn't want me to touch it because they thought more or less that I would damage their instrument. So whenever they go on to work, you know, I watch what they do and, you know, watch the positions that they hold. And they tune down the guitar, but somehow I, I hum it in my brain how the guitar should be tuned. And I tune it. Tune it up after they're, they're gone to work and I try and play, you know, and to run it down back until when I come back. So one evening, one of them came home and um, his other brother uh, didn't come. He wasn't um, in time, you know, so he was waiting on him. So I figured more or less that um, I would give him a surprise somehow, you know. So I just tune up the uke when Sammy tuning up the uke. I mean, this is something that he couldn't even say anything because he was so amazed, you know. Anyway, I started to play, and then from there on, they found out how good I could play. So they start taking me to all their friends now, and I am going around to all their friends and play. And they say, you may as well keep the uke. <laughs> so that's how I got the ukulele. <laughs> so your uncles were there for musical then? Yes, yes, but they weren't all that great. I mean, they, you know, like three chords, but they could play in a few keys, but three chords, you know. So um, from there, I, I watched what they did and I tried to memorize it, you know. And that's how I managed to play by year until I was about 14. Then, you know, I said, well, I should really study this thing now properly, you know. So where did you actually begin your studying then? Well, I bought books because I went to a, a professional guitar player, which I won't mention his name. 
And I asked him if he could teach me, but he, he gave me such a big price, you know. I said, no, boy, I couldn't afford it, you know, because I was still going to school and I, I, I couldn't afford it. So I said, the best thing I could do then is buy books. So I started like first step tutors and start studying these books. And um, I figured more or less that I could teach myself. And that's how it all happened. You know, I, I keep buying books until today I'm still studying, you know. And so, I mean, all that you've acquired on the on the guitar has been a, as a result of your own efforts, yes, your own my, application, my your own self-taught methods. Yeah, everything, yes, all the way. Were you ever a student at Alpha? No. What I, um, what I used to do at Alpha, um, I remember I have friends that used to, you know, play uh, sax or trumpet, and some used to be in Stony Hill too. So what I would do sometimes, um, they have bands, you know, where they play this orchestra, uh, used to play this orchestra, um, we call it um, standard arrangements, you know, like um, the various bands with stock arrangements. And... Um, I would go, since they didn't have any guitar player, so I would go and sit in with them sometimes. And I go up to Stone Hill too, and I sit up there in, in the band too, you know, and play with them. But as as far it was, as it was. Mm-hmm. How did you get your first professional play, break? When did you start playing professionally? Well, um, as I said, I started at 14 to, to study the instrument. And, and at the age of 16, I went into Valbenes band. And um, uh, and well, that's where I started. And about a year after that, I went into Eric Dean's band. And um, well, they used to have a lot of shows. That time um, it was at Colony Club, which is um State Theatre. Now is that right, State? And um, I they used to have a lot of artists that come down, you know, like from America and um, various countries, Cuba, all over the place, and um. They would bring different type of music, which would widen my my thing. You know, this was great for me because uh, I started to have a wider repertoire. Let's call it that way, you know. And um, so I was uh, able to play Spanish music, uh, you know, Broadway music, whatever, whatever they bring, you know. And and that was what helped me a lot. That was a good education for me, really. And you know? and listening to. Now playing with when Eric Deans, when we go out to Haiti, we had a bigger size band, you know, and um, I could listen now to the various sections, even from Val Bennett band, I could listen to the various section of instruments. That was what helped me by listening, you know, because I could play my part. I memorized my part most of the time. So therefore, I had enough time that I could listen to what the sax is playing, what the, what the brass section or what the reed section is playing. And I could figure, oh, this is how this arranger, you know, it's like giving me a lesson in harmony and arranging and everything, you know, because I could listen to the lines that they play and the harmony they use and so forth. And um, I would go to the, the various players and ask them the range of their instrument and all that. So this now I know what, uh, you know, range to write for each instrument and things like that. Mm-hmm. So when I reached uh, into Dean's band, about uh, I made my first arrangement and I asked them to play it, you know. And um, from there on, I started. This was from about 1950, 
I would say 52, 53, somewhere about there, I started to do this thing. And then one of my, I would say one of the, 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 the tapping of the cake and that, and my playing, uh, playing in group was with Bobby Motors group. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they used to play more modern music and it was a quartet, so we could, I had more room space to play now, you know, mm-hmm. instead of playing in a band. And, um, I and even I can remember too when uh, I was at Colony Club one time when Deans wasn't there and George Moxie was there, that great, you know, that great man. And um, I remember too, I can even give you stories of when um, George, when some of these artists come down, if George, uh, George Moxie wasn't around, around the next man named Finger and Jones. I ever hear of that man. He was a great Canadian pianist. Those two men were two of the greatest readers. So when these shows come down, if the music is too difficult for the pianist, would run and get to either one of them, you know. So George was playing at Colony Club for a while, and then little G, no, Joe Harriet was in the band and Joe enlightened me to a lot of things too, you know, as a youngster, you know, and really uh, my mind opened a little wider again. And then with um, Baba Morton, all that was really a good thing that happened to me because um, I get to play, I was more freely, I could play more freely and then ex- expound what I wanted to do much in a more freer form, you know. What about the developments that were happening in popular Jamaican music? How how involved did you become with that? What do you mean? Um, during that time or after? During that time. I mean, what was, you know, when the when the the, the music started to be recorded, you know, yeah. first from Seska. Oh, from... well, that is after now, yes. Well, Ska, I was the first person who really recorded Ska. I did it um, with a Chloe Johnson bass. Uh, Roland Alfonso Tenor, Rico Rodriguez, Trombone, uh, um, Jump Bigger, Jumps, and, um, okay, well, you know, a few more, but most of these. And the first tune that we recorded was uh, Easy Snapping by Theophilus Beckford. And I made sure, put on the B side a tune named Silky, which was my composition. So I put that on the B-side, and that was the first ever record that came out as Kia. So what, you produced that with, with Theophilus, Easy Snapping? Yes. Yeah. I wasn't really the producer. The producer, I think, I can't remember who was the producer. I, to tell you the truth, <laughs> I, can, I, I think, no, you know who was the producer? Uh, um, the studio One. Uh, Clement Dodd. Clement Dodd. Mm-hmm. Yes, because what really happened, we came together. That time he had a... A liquor store down at um, Love Lane. That's where he invited me. That which was a little more quiet from other business places that he had, you know. Mm-hmm. So we went down there, and I think it was on a Sunday, and we sat down and he said, "Well, um, I think that we could formulate this thing, you know, and by playing certain records to me, and you know, that's how he always relate to you by playing records and say, well, you see what this man is doing here and what is, you know, and we put put things together, mm-hmm. and um." This is how we came up with because it's really from the shuffle rhythm that this guy came came from, you know, like called Louis Jordan and all those type of shuffle rhythm that used oh, to so play. So in fact, Dad used to pick up those yeah, records always, and yeah, and you listen to them, and in a sense, you came up with your own kind of version. No, well, the both of us, we we, we sat down and it, you know, because this is generally even 
And maybe until today, that's how he does his records. If you listen to Dan Drummond's records and, and many of those other guys' records, you hear a lot of things from other teams, from other uh, tunes, from you, and they try to put them together. Mm -hmm. And this is how most of the time this thing, you know, because this is the way he does mm -hmm. it, you know. And um, so, you know, he would play these records and say, well, listen, see this beat and this that that are what what you know mm -hmm. and they say well we would like to formulate a new beat that's really it's not i am not the real person to keep to take the full credit of it but i was the person who could put it to music mm -hmm. you know but he had the idea and you know he he came to me and the both of us sat down and we tried put it put it together and then i you know as, as a musician i i brought out the thoughts you know so you're saying that this guy originally came out of the shuffle, the Bill Doggett. Yes, and, the and Louis Louis Jordan. Jordan, yes, mm -hmm. yes. That's where it, it's really from. But you added other Jamaican elements in it as well, though. Well, yes, yes. You know, well, uh, eventually, you know, like you go to a tailor and you say, I want it this way, but then he looks at other things and figure that he could, you know, and mm -hmm. put the trimmings, you mm -hmm. know. <laughs> so you you recorded a great deal at Studio One then? Oh, yes, um... I well, we started first at at JBC. Remember when JBC was home? That's where we started doing a lot of recordings. That's, so those records, even Prince Buster, I did his first first set of records for him. I'll wash wash and all those tunes. I was a person who did do those tunes for him, mm -hmm. and it was done at JBC. Then eventually, when I went to England, you remember now this girl now was getting big in foreign countries, mm -hmm. but um, it was only being done by rhythm section alone and, and the people said they, they just hear organ and guitar or whatever it is all the time and they, they want to hear something more. Mm -hmm. So this is why I had to go to England for Chris Blackwell and I did this uh, a bigger size band, you know, put it with a bigger size band that they could hear saxophones, trumpets or whatever it may be. And um, th that, that was stretching it now mm -hmm. a little wider. And... Um, so that um, that's how the whole thing really um, came into being a little more commercial or a little more popularized, you know, mm -hmm. among the countries. So you, how did you actually meet up with Chris Blackwell then? Well, I was the very first person who started his company, you know, as an arranger. I was his arranger and I was his A&R man. So, in other words, essentially, Blackwell has claimed that he was the first man to make pop records in Jamaica, and you were there for... I was, there. yes, I was the man. I We started a company from Montego Bay, we, we talked about it, and Lance Haywood was, we did the first album, one side with me and one side with Lance Haywood, and then I did Guitar and Ernest after that with the company, and then... I came to Odeon Avenue where now we had Owen Gray, Wilfred Edwards, and the new name them, I'm saying Boris Gardner, I think they were the rhythm aces, C's for Christmas, tunes like those. And um and a lot of, you know, what I can't even remember today, you know, and um that was where Odeon Avenue now was with the place that we spread it out. And um then he went to England. Yes, as I, as we're saying, um from Odeon Avenue. Odeon Avenue. So he went to England, and um, but he found out that he couldn't, somehow he couldn't, it wasn't going too well for him, you know. So he came back for me, and um, in about the first month, we did that slow tune for Millie and Jackie Edwards. 
and it sold a quarter million about in two weeks after that or pretty early after that you know and seeing that this thing was going so nicely uh, well, somehow we decided to go to Brighton one Sunday morning because um the winter kind of it was a little it was clearing up a bit so it was a nice sunny day so we said let's go down you know to Brighton to the beach and on the way we, well he was always saying that Millie wasn't a great um singer so to speak so we'd have to do something for her and if we make a hit for her it would last her for at least 10 years you know so we didn't know what to do was somehow going down to Brighton I don't know remember how this thing came up but my boy Lollipop came up you know and I'm singing various little parts just like what you hear you know and I say well how about this part ba 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 you know and whatever mm-hmm. and um so we formulated the whole thing on the way down to Brighton and back, you know. And when I came back, I arranged it overnight and we recorded it. I think on the Monday we recorded the next day. And um, that was her big hit. And then, well, after that, I did an LP for her with um, some fat stamina or tunes. I don't know whatever happened to them. And um, that was... It was, well, it was never released? That, that I don't know if it was, you know, because I went into doing jazz after that, you know, and um, I eventually leave the country and come back to Jamaica. Why did you branch away from popular music then with Millie Small in the jazz? Well, um, it's hard to say these things, you know, but um, I guess I was a little... Uh, well, I came back here and I, I, I was doing things for Federal Recording Company. I was the musical director for Federal for 10 years, you know. Well, I didn't spend all 10 years. I spent about five, six years out of it. I did seven albums during that time for myself. And, you know, Ernest Smith got his first, um, a, a few tunes from me, you know. And many other guys down there too, you know. And um, so, but at, the, at that time, I was still working for, I used to do a lot of things for Studio One. Studio One was my, um, you know, I realized that Studio One, he was more of a, a guy who saw the light. I mean, you know, he was more... Progressive. Yes. Coxon was always a progressive yes, producer. Yes, you know, so I always... Well, until I left here in 1980 the last time, and I did so much work in, in, in the studio about 1979 uh, up to 80 that um, I saw where he had records uh, for about two years. He had hits every week. First, one and two... If you can remember, he was on the chart every week, one and two, or at least one and two. And um, all those tunes, I I do a lo- I had a lot to do with them, you know, because generally when, if the guys come in and whatever they do, I used to work there too, you know, as his um, arranger too. And um, if I'm not even there, some of the guys would put lay down the tracks, like the rhythm tracks. If I don't like the bass, I would take out the bass and put, replace it, and the guitar, replace it, and generally, most of the time, I am really the lead guitar, you know, but I may play so much different styles that nobody know that I'm the guy who's playing these things, you know. <laughs> you did all that with Coxon. Yeah, yeah. Clever. <laughs> so, you know. So you're saying that you made a switch from pop to jazz. Was that because of not getting enough challenge or reward from the pop not scene? or reward. So, um, I figure more or less, well, I love jazz, and since I love jazz that much, I may as well go and do what I, I really, you know, and, and 
as the year I was, luckily I was, uh, I got the Melody Maker pool at that year, you know, for, for Britain. So at least I, I achieved something. <laughs> Would you say that the time that you spent with Federal also in the capacity of a, of a, an arranger and a, and a, a lead musician, that, yeah. that was also satisfying too? Well, it was in a sense, you know, um, but, uh, to tell you the truth, as far as I've seen, I, I, if I could say I was a little bit disappointed with, with many things uh, in the in the whole musical structure uh, from about nine in the fifties, you know. Can you list those disappointments? Well, that, you know, some of them are, but um, I would say like I would go to America when I look, I am and I may have seven albums and a label here. And when I go to America, I sit on a, on a, on a different label. And when I look, uh, it's, it's, the, the seven records are on different, uh, you know. And when I ask about it, I say, oh, you know, always find an excuse. And a lot of people always come to me and say, oh boy, your record's doing well in America. When I go and ask, I say, what am I to do? So I say, oh, must be somebody to come here, buy a record and play it over there and they like to hear it and things like that, you know. And these things are quite disappointing, you know. And In a sense, what you're saying is that you are exploited and you weren't rewarded for that many, exploitation. Many ways, all the way, you know. And this is why I stopped around 1970, late 60. And um, then... Around 1972, I did Wrangling Roots for Aquarius. And um, that's another thing. I don't know whatever happened. I don't know what is the I don't Until now, I can't tell you anything. So you'd say, Ernie, throughout your entire recording career, you haven't yet been given the kind of opportunity to record at the level to which you ought to be able to record, or in fact, to have the kind of arrangement in which you are going to benefit some real rewards from it. Well, that's a fact. That's a fact. You know, and I think um, the things that I've gone through, it takes a guy with a lot of courage to still, you know, be... Um, Positive about your music. Yes, you know, and um, that's one thing I'm glad for, that I really had that strength. <laughs> <laughs> what about the times when you've worked with people like Jimmy Cliff? Because you've also, despite the fact of playing a kind of very shepherding, shepherding role in the beginning for a lot of those talents, you've yeah. also gone out and worked with a major pop star like Jimmy Cliff. Yes, yes. I, I've, I've played all over the world with Jimmy Cliff, all over America, Hawaii, um, Europe, um, Japan twice. We were the first people who go to Japan to play reggae, mm -hmm. and and we were invited the second year after that. And then that 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 was about the same year when Bob Marley went there too. But Jimmy Cliff was the guy who opened the way. Mm -hmm. Did you ever work with Bob? No. Uh, yes, I did his first hit for him. Um, it hurts to be alone in in Coxon Studio. What was that like? You remember any of? You have any recollections of that time? Well, it's a slow tune, you know, um, and um, this was his very, very first tune that he sang, you know. What was he like then? He was a young guy, you know, and uh, quite nice, you know. I know Bob a long time because Bob used to live in front of my home where we used to live in Trenchtown in those days, was early days when 
Trent Town was nice, you know, it was a different place from today. Well, I don't want to cry down the place, but I mean, to me, in those days, it was, it was so peaceful, you know. And um, yeah, I knew him as a, as a young boy, we used to play cricket and football together, you know, play out the streets like, you know, as young boys, they play out in the streets and play little football and cricket, you know, and... Um, I know Bob a long while, so when Coxon, you know, decided to, to record him, I, you know, it was great because I, he was no stranger to me anyway, you know. Were you aware of his talent at that time? No, I wasn't really aware of his talent because, you know, I've been going up and down like uh, in America, all over from Nassau and all those, you know, so... When I come back, like, you know, I realized you now that this was happening because when Coxon Studio opened, it, it, it was originally Club The End. That's where I used to play. And um, then I went to England and I met some people who, who were going to even back me to buy the, buy the club. So when I came back to buy this club, when I look outside, it was a recording studio, you know. Noel Tapping had sold out in the interim. Seems so, yes. So mm. it was a... Um, uh, recording studio now you know so this is where i started from and the first guy was was um bob marley and then a guy named uh, opel jackie opel i did his lp for him his very first lp in jamaica mm -hmm. and then from there the scatterlights came to be formed yes were you actually there when that band was put together? Well, I was the first man who was like the arranger. I remember I used to work in Coxon Studio, you know, so I was the first guy who started the thing, whole thing and then eventually it blossomed. And um, Tommy and Roland, you know, they, they took over. And, they, well, they, they started to play out. Now, I was supposed to even go to England with the band once, you know, when they were going to do a tour in England, the very, very first tour, but I didn't go. I, didn't, I think the band didn't go again, too. Something happened. Mm -hmm. And um, then eventually, um, Jackie Me Too took over for a time, you know, and when Jackie started going away, you know, I was around again, and I did my, you know, I was... Arranger again, you know. I, I'm always out and in and out, you know, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. all through the years I I worked through that studio. And if I if I'm even away for a while, there so, he has so many music. As I come, he would give me a lot of stuff to you know to mm -hmm. to polish up, you know. You once did an album with Noel Tappen, which he played for me. Yeah. <laughs> whatever became of that? I album? don't know whatever happened to that album. You know, that's that that was a nice album. I think you know it was a nice effort, and I I I, I to tell you the truth, I don't even have a copy of any sound of it. <laughs> so he has a master tape still. I guess so. I guess he should have it. Mm -hmm. He should. What about your most recent recording project? I have heard the at least two or three of the tracks. I haven't had a chance to listen to the entire tape, but yeah. I get the feeling that you're getting closer mm -hmm. to the the kind of recording situations that you know you think is really do you now? Yes. Well, this is the thing. You know, I realize I have to. Um, what should I say? Uh, uh, fit myself into. Whatever you know, because um, don't care what you you do, you can't play over the people's head in a certain sense. You got to, you know, stay in there and keep modern whatever is happening. Live with it, you know. And this is what I'm doing now. Um, 
I play jazz too, and I there are times when I play jazz, but I don't even play jazz way out like like Archie Shep and guys, you know what those guys used to play. I don't go that far out either, you know. I play within a certain um, spectrum of the thing, you know, and um, it's the same thing I do now. Like if I'm doing recordings, I would keep to a certain level that. Uh, commercial level to a point because you, you got to sell the record and if you're going to make it I mean over everybody's it's just going to be a, a masterpiece put on one side and you know mm-hmm. even though I would love to to, to, to to have something like that at all times put on one side too but I guess it's as, posterity or whatever you would call it <laughs> Thanks for listening to Riffin Radio with Dermot Hussey Be sure to like us and subscribe. We put out a podcast a week. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram at R-I-F-F-I-N Radio, Facebook, Dermot Hussey, and check out our YouTube channel, Riffin Radio. <laughs>